Greetings from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today Bryce Green and I are going to be doing a first for this podcast. We're going to review another podcast. I'm talking, of course, about Blowback Season 4 from Noah Colon and Brendan James. The subject of Season 4? Afghanistan. This is a pretty long discussion here because we just blew through our plan to keep it at around an hour. That is hopefully a good sign. Check the show notes for links to Blowback 4. It is definitely worth the price if you enjoy podcasts and have any interest in U.S. imperialism. That probably would apply to my entire audience, yeah? Anyway, on with the show. Bryce Green, are you ready to talk about blowback? Yes, I am. Okay, well then let's go. Blowback season four was released around September, I believe, uh, with Brendan James and Noah Colwin, or Noah Colwin and Brendan James. I don't know who gets top billing there, so you gentlemen can sort that out. But <laughs> what were your impressions of, uh, how was your experience listening to the season four of blowback? Yeah, so I really liked it. Uh, I, I actually hadn't listened to the first couple seasons of Blowback. You know, all my friends were telling me to listen to it. Uh, I, I follow, like, Noah on Twitter, and uh, I read some of, like, his writing, but I had never actually listened to Blowback. And so this one, you know, since we, we you and I both read a lot about Afghanistan and 9-11 and the Mujahideen and uh, terrorism, uh, Blowback, season four seemed like a perfect entry to get in and since they're all self-contained it's not like i had to listen to like the first few seasons to understand it uh, but i thought the way they handled the story of you know the last well last couple hundred years of afghanistan largely but the last like 50 or so years specifically with u.s involvement i thought it was pretty thorough and extremely even if you hadn't known much about afghanistan before uh, not only does it guide you through what happened and, uh, you know, give you uh, a backstory to uh, understand not only the Mujahideen but, uh, of the 80s, but also the terrorism, uh, the, the global war on terrorism after 9-11. Uh, I think they give you the tools to understand it pretty well, um, even if you're a beginner. And if you want a more detailed treatment, I mean, all throughout the show, they are offering up uh, names and uh, reports and books and authors that you can look into that you can go into yourself and uh, get a deeper look at it you know like they, they talk about peter dale scott they mentioned james banford's book like seymour hirsch's book all, all these uh all these writers uh, that, that they give the reader the real tools to dig in which is helpful uh and uh, the way they lead up to uh you know through the the mcjihad years of the 90s is pretty interesting because they're uncovering a lot of things that uh, most Americans probably don't know. They probably, uh, and they probably don't know anything about uh, someone like Ali Muhammad. And they probably don't know anything about the continuity of government measures. Uh, and all those things are presented in a way that I think uh, your average listener is going to be pretty, pretty damn enlightened. Yeah, I agree. They do a great job laying out in this season, which focuses on Afghanistan, the last 50 years, or it goes from the early 70s up to the present, really, uh, and what has happened in that country. And 
even though I'm familiar with this history and have written about it, there were certain aspects of it that they did illuminate for me and, and clarified, um, even as there were some things that they left out, which we'll talk about, which probably very, very few listeners would ever be uh, focusing on. I just happened to have delved into these areas with uh, writing articles with Peter, especially those 9-11 articles where we really looked at these things in depth. Uh, so there are things that I would I would quibble about, but on mostly about omissions. Uh, there's only really one error that I would call an error that I would have really wanted to expand on, and we'll talk about that later. That deals with the Masood assassination, and that's not maybe an error of omission, depending on how you want to think of it. But the there's a, there's a, there's a lot of reason to believe that the story that they come up with, which the mainstream media and Wikipedia and everybody else wants to stick to, is that Masood was killed, you know, by Bin Laden or al-Qaeda directly uh, dealing with Muhammad al-Zawahiri was involved with that story is problematic but we'll come back to that a little bit later on I found it also enjoyable to listen to largely even as I listened to it in not the best uh, not in a way that would have been like exactly the most fun because I was trying to take notes on it half the time you know so that's a different experience even then I still really enjoyed the whole thing and I think they did a great job putting it together and as you say they give enough uh sources for further reading so that if anyone is interested in any aspect of this they can go and do more reading and research which i think is really important so i give them credit for making this stuff presentable and probably palatable even to people who are not inclined to believe the more darker you know possibilities that uh people offer about what the u.s is really doing you know mm-hmm. i mean this question of islam and what's the u.s hand in it they go into a lot and they they spend a good bit of time going into what they call the mcjihad thesis so i thought that was a great thing that they were able to do is because i think a lot of people are not aware of what the u.s was doing with these people especially in that area in that era between the 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 war in Afghanistan in the 80s, you know, the Mujahideen and the war on terror. That whole area era, where the where Al Qaeda foot soldiers are kind of being used as sock puppets for the U.S. Um, in, in different places, geopolitical hotspots. That's important that they did that and that they included that. So that was really cool. Oh yeah, yeah. Like this, uh, the idea of you know the the whole concept of the Safari Club and the subterranean intelligence connections uh, that sprung up and started being uh, actively used in the wake of the post-Watergate, uh, you know, sort of crackdown on the intelligence community. I mean, that most Americans have never heard of that, like, at all. Most Americans don't understand the idea that, uh, you know, they conceptualize state activity within merely the state, right? They, they think of the bureaucracy of the CIA and the FBI and all these intelligence agencies it's just like just as top down as any company that they would work at or any you know government agency uh, that they might be personally familiar with. Um, but uh, illuminating the Safari Club and illuminating the idea that, well, not only are these powerful actors able to influence the in- intelligence bureaucracies proper, but they're also able to step outside of the boundaries of the public state and operate a, a se- largely of their own volition. I mean, uh, y- the Safari Club is, you know, one of those major networks that comes up in deep politics and comes up in Peter Dale Scott's uh, work. But it's important because you can't really understand these these funding mechanisms and these influence mechanisms of how the Mujahideen worked. Like, it wasn't necessarily just the CIA saying, 
here, terrorist, go, go, go crazy. Go terrorize some people. Yeah, here, terrorists, go terrorize. But it was more about these funding channels, these, uh, these drug smuggling networks, their interactions between certain parts of the state that other parts of the state might be fighting against uh, and that other parts of other states might be involved in. So when you have the CIA being involved in Pakistan and, uh, you know, having the Pakistanis funnel a lot of the, that money to the Mujahideen, I mean, just understanding that, that process of deep politics is, is pretty much essential. And you don't, and you can't understand Pakistan itself without understanding that, right? Like Pakistan has so many like different facets to it and different factions vying for control. Like at one point they're helping the, uh, the U.S. invade Afghanistan, but they're also supporting the Taliban, who the U.S. came to invade, which, I mean, that doesn't make sense to your average, you know, nightly news viewer. Like, that's a complicated mess to unravel. But once you understand the idea that, yes, there are factions within a state and there are factions without the state that uh, are able to exercise influence and that are able to shape policy and direct foreign policy in a top-down way, the entire saga, the tragic saga of Afghanistan becomes to be uh, maybe not clear, but a hell of a lot more comprehensible. Yeah, it is in that whole era where there are things that happen there which are relevant to the story. They don't put them in there, and I can't necessarily blame them for it because it's I haven't really hashed all these things out and I've pushed them together in part through conversations with Peter Dale Scott because he's just such a peerless source on these issues. But the issue of the Safari Club is re- relates to a more difficult area for any academic or any person interested in politics or good government to, to start looking into because you're talking about the ways that oligarchic power that uh, were intertwined with the state can suddenly detach if they need to and then still do the same things that they were doing before and get what they needed. And Peter told me that, um, and he's written about this too, that in 1967, there was a, if I recall correctly, that was the year, there was a CFR meeting where they said, at the same meeting, they say that the war, the Vietnam War spending is out of, is out of control and it's going to risk destabilizing the dollar system if something is not done. And that is related to how this was presented to LBJ later. And he was told basically LBJ wanted to announce an escalation. And then they said, no, Clark Clifford as the emissary of like the CFR and wall street, apparently uh, said, that's not, no, it's not going to happen boss. And, uh, and then shortly afterwards, LBJ, you know, drops out of the race. not that long after LBJ drops out, out of the race, I think in part because he knew this was going to be a debacle that he couldn't possibly win. Was but, it Scott who described that as like losing the mandate of heaven, or did he use that with another? He said president? that about other people. He said that about Jimmy Carter, uh, the Rockefeller mandate of heaven, because that, Jimmy Carter was, was a Rockefeller guy first, and then eventually Rockefeller turns against him and like is on, is part of the October Surprise people, which is an amazing <laughs> story. But the other thing that happens at that 1967 CFR meeting is there are statements made about how they need to make covert operations less bureaucratic. And that, to me, the fact that they are saying that in 67, it uh, points to some scary things in U.S. history. I mean, something happens in the Middle East, which I don't have a perfect answer for why it happened, but you went from them trying to balance 
Arab nationalism and support for country for the the countries in the Middle East and their own sort of secular governments potentially, um, and and then supporting Israel. And the balance was was such that like at at some points Kennedy is friendlier towards Nasser than he is towards the towards Israel. He even forces the apparently forces the resignation of Ben Gurion late in Kennedy's presidency because he refused to allow the Israelis to further enrich uranium and even raise the prospect of threatening continued U.S. aid over this issue. And it, it seems that Ben-Gurion resigned rather than accept receipt of this letter as sort of a stalling technique or something, which is a disturbing possibility, um, because why would he think that, that would bear fruit, except it did. Um, I'm not saying that Israel was behind the assassination at all, but I'm saying it's, you know, they may have been part of a coalition at some, at some levels at the very top, they may have been uh, giving a thumbs up to that. I, I think it's the Eastern establishment, dullest people with national security people and Texas, Texas right-wingers and stuff brought along for yeah. the ride. But set, set all that aside, that the fact that they make are talking about needing to switch to other less bureaucratic forms of covert operations that's pretty scary given what happens in the 70s that they actually they do start using these foreign intelligence services and if you think it's bad trying to see what's going on in the cia what hope do you have to know what's going on in pakistan's secret service yeah. they don't even have the pretense of democracy so much in saudi arabia or pakistan i mean i guess they have a little pretense in pakistan but you can still get knocked off pretty easily yeah, the CIA can ignore your FOIA request, but, like, you can't even begin to FOIA, like, you know, the ISI or the GID, because, uh, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a red line. And, you know, they, the blowback actually starts talking about uh, some of the problems with this when uh, they talk about the, uh, like, the investigation into the U.S. coal bombing and, uh, or the, uh, the, um, the, the terrorist attack in Saudi Arabia that, uh, you know, killed Americans. You had FBI investigators going over there and being like, well, you know, we, we kind of want to figure out about uh, this bin Laden fellow. Uh, and then there's like a brick wall. And they're like, well, the Saudis, we can't, they, they, they won't let us, they won't let us interview them. They won't give us any intelligence or information. And the U.S. is like, oh, well, let's, uh, that's just how the Saudis are. And John O'Neill, you know, the FBI guy who, uh, would later die in the World Trade Center. Uh, he flat out said, "It's like it's oil interests. The oil interests of uh, you know the United States have a vested interest in keeping good relations with Saudi Arabia, and therefore we can't uncover any information that would be embarrassing to Saudi Arabia." I and mean, that guy died on nine eleven, though. So he's whatever he said. He said before nine eleven. You've got to wonder if he might have thought. That in retrospect, if he could have seen his own death in the future, which would be a weird thing for anyone to be able to do. But <laughs> if he could have, if he'd somehow been given the gift of future sight or whatever, would he really, would he buy that oil thing? Or would he think that that was more of a cover story of sorts for why you couldn't? I mean, because it is perfect that they can just say like, oh, they're so we can't investigate them because of the oil. I mean, they've done that in the past, really, with 9-11. That's sort of the implication is that like, it would damage U.S. national security if lawsuits for 9-11 went forward. So Yeah, well, to the extent that uh, he's correct about oil uh, interest being behind that sort of secrecy, about being behind that relationship with Saudi Arabia, I mean, it, it's true because those relationships and those interests also underlie the creation of the Safari Club. 
they also underlie the uh, entire you know global western-led intelligence apparatus so if you don't want to say that well they were you know they were hiding some sort of operation uh i mean that that would be true in in the sense that they they don't want those operations of deep politics to be exposed now what those operations actually entail is an open question is it just you know the you know big money and oil manipulation uh i mean it's obviously not just that uh, but uh, to what extent does it include the intelligence you know cloak and dagger operations uh you can't tell but it's all under this umbrella of of these oil majors the interests of the ultra wealthy and the uh, not inability but unwillingness of the u.s public state to even try to confront that and that's where that's this dark zone from which all of uh you know all of this tale that blowback is going through uh, that's where it springs from you know the, yeah. the drug networks the the outlaw banks bcci uh i mean that's that's all wrapped up in there and yeah uh, the, I, I think the O'Neill issue... seemed to catch wind of it yeah absolutely he did and for me the way i think of it and you're right this is a valuable and noteworthy thing because what he is saying is i had every reason to suspect that that aspects of saudi elite and, and state were involved in coordinating the activities of, of al-qaeda and i was told that i could not investigate further because of you know because of oil the, the politics of oil so what can we take from that well we can take we know we can believe him most likely unless he doesn't have much reason to lie that he really did try to investigate these things and he was told no you cannot mm-hmm. investigate this further and the reason for that being was the reason offered to him was oil which i think i can see why that would seem totally plausible I don't think it really was so much about the oil. I think the oil gives them the wherewithal to make them the perfect vehicle as the U.S. establishment cutouts because they have, a, they have so much money coming in. I mean, they have money coming in in excess of what they need to run their government. So they, you know, they do crazy things like Just building big, big portable you know, soccer fields on water and all the other crazy things that go on in the Gulf. So... That made them the perfect, uh, perfect way to launder money. Basically, they did the same thing with selling them AWACS. Like you sell them military equipment, but then that money can be used in different slush funds and so on. I mean, it's so it, it's so difficult to even imagine how you could have accountability in this system, and they made it that way on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it, it, that I mean that is the the, the long running theme here. It's that these uh, these covert networks are operating. Uh, you know, through channels that you can't really audit, that you can't really see. Uh, and, you know, it, it gets involved in all sorts of things that Americans are primed to think of as, you know, vices, things that the Americans are fighting, uh, but they're not, like corruption in the, like, major banks, uh, drug trafficking money, uh, like, literal terrorism. Uh, you know, the, the Contra War is an extreme example of that. I don't think they delve deeply into the Contra War in... Uh, in blowback, but I no, you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if future season was Iran Contra. I was about to say because that's his whole that's a whole other beast that needs to be uh, <laughs> Iran Contra, uh, uh, Indonesia 1965, uh, uh, Congo. They could do they could do whole seasons on any of those. I could also see them doing a Watergate. The, the beauty of their business model, if we want to call it that, is that you're not going to run out of. Uh, tales of high fuckery when, when yeah. your, your protagonist or antagonist is the u.s empire like they're gonna they'll die we'll we'll all die we'll all be dead before they would run out of stories uh, because... yeah 
and uh, so much. You know, we, we were talking about John O'Neill earlier, and uh, you know, I mean, his story is interesting for a lot of reasons. You mentioned that he did die in the uh, in the World Trade Center. He got a job there uh, a few days or like a week or two before the actual attacks. After quitting the C or the FBI's Counterterrorism Center, I believe it was. And, yeah, and I think that's quite convenient for. Yeah. Everybody, except for and him. this is after he spends a lot of time like trying to raise the alarm, trying to trying to say like, "Hey, I need information on Bin Laden. I need information on these terrorists. Uh, like, there's a there's an attack coming soon." And it's so uh, sad, eventually... really. Yeah, it, it really is sad. Uh, I, mean, they, I think they, like they this... messed with that guy to the, I mean, to the point that I think I. Ha I think it's a strong possibility that they put him there knowing what was coming for him. I, I, I think that that, uh, that, that, that does make sense. Um, I, I can't remember the exact uh, scenario as to how he got the job. but yeah, I mean, I mean I'm not saying I can <laughs> prove this or anything. I'm just saying the way you think of how jobs work of like, you know what I mean? You, hire, you know how, you get, how people get hired Earth. and other people get hired. They're always like, hey, maybe you should hire this guy. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like he died, and like, he he actually got out of the the World Trade Center, and then like went back in and was helping people because he was like that kind of guy. And well, then no, he uh, wasn't but, expecting the. Who would have thought that those towers would come down? It was a very unprecedented phenomenon. Yeah, <laughs> and um, Michael Scheuer, the the first head of Alex Station, he's actually quoted as, as saying something like, "The only good thing that happened on nine eleven uh, was those towers collapsing on John O'Neill." Which is a pretty, like, that's an insane thing to say about somebody. Well, John O'Neill was trying to arrest, you know, uh, was trying to go after Michael's little network of jihadi sock puppets or something, right? The, so uh, he's well, got to protect yeah, his turf. Because yeah, he, he confirmed it in, like, a congressional testimony, and he was, like, unflinching. He was like, yes, I hate this man, John O'Neill. And it's even crazier to hear someone say who was the head of the Alex station, which is the Bin Laden unit, that was keeping so much information from the FBI that was driving John O'Neill so crazy uh, yeah. for all those years. So, it, I mean, it's just a all-around weird situation. But, uh, as I mean, we're going to continue to talk about, and as Blowback talked about, a lot of these weird situations keep happening. Like these, uh, like all these attacks in the 90s uh, against American interests that were... Uh, you know that the there was some degree of covert involvement in them you know you can call them deep events in the sense that you know they emerge out of these covert processes uh one of the, the main ones after uh the after the you know the jihad in afghanistan ended was the uh, murder of mayor kahana by al saeed nosair who uh you know was a a muslim guy who had trained with uh, ali muhammad uh, Ali Muhammad was the CIA uh, asset who was first a Egyptian army intelligence officer and then comes to the U.S., becomes a, uh, a Green Beret. Uh, was it, uh, yeah, a Green Beret. He's training at, like, Fort Bragg, I believe. And then he gets all these manuals, all these uh, uh, all this information about, like, training high-level high soldiers. And then he ends up going to <laughs> Afghanistan to fight in the Mujahideen his commanding officers are like, you can't do that. Uh, and he's like, yes, I can. And then he gets off scot-free and his commanding officers are like, well, I mean, he must have had help from up high. Uh, and But then this guy goes on to train the guy who murders Mayor Kahana. 
But, you know, in the classic, uh, people who study deep politics will know that lone nut stories are pretty much bread and butter when it comes to these events. Uh, the prosecutors only prosecuted it as a lone nut, even though they found information at uh, Nosayer's house that implicated that he was part of a larger cell of people. The FBI was actually taking pictures of this cell uh, before the murder happened. And, uh, you know, there are, there are actually stories out there. I don't know how true they are because I haven't looked deeply into them, but that Nosayer might not even have been the murderer, that it might have been a, a patsy scenario. Um, and I think there was someone who investigated the, like the ballistic evidence of that actual day, uh, but that's a whole other separate story. The point is that this was embedded in ongoing covert processes. And one of Nosair's uh, spiritual uh, advisors uh, and like inspirations was the blind sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, who yeah. the well, only they reason definitely he was allowed... protected him in that case. Yeah. The only reason that Rockman was allowed into the U.S. was because of a CIA-sponsored visa and uh, his connection to the Nosair case and uh, Ali Muhammad's connection to the Nosair case were completely covered up. And so you had this, you know, proto-Al-Qaeda cell being protected by U.S. authorities. And yeah. they were protected until, uh, the, you know, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, which, you know, Blowback talks about uh, uh, briefly. Uh, and they, they, one thing I they do, I, they do mention them. They they get across the main points of the case and the way that the FBI essentially made it happen. I mean, exactly. they kind of they kind of went beyond letting it happen on purpose, and we're right up at the edge of making it happen. If depending on how you want to look at it, yeah, exactly. Um, the the story is uh, talked about in depth in Peter Lance's book Triple Cross, which is about Ali Muhammad, which I, I definitely recommend it. I'm pretty sure they cited it in Blowback Bunch. Um, but the story is that, um, uh, you know, you had this Al-Qaeda cell that was planning on blowing up the World Trade Center. Uh, and their plan was to, you know, like uh, put a van in the basement and then blow it up at the base. Uh, but this plot was infiltrated by an FBI informant named Ahmad Salem. And Salem and was, was sending one of the shrewder guys that they've ever recruited, I think. that He was actually probably smarter than what they would have wanted, as you're, yeah. you're going to explain. Yeah, he was he was a smart guy because not only was he talking about ways to disrupt the plot and ways uh, uh, like perfect information, like uh, like he could have replaced the substance, the explosive substance, with something that isn't as explosive. Um, uh, but what really makes him so shrewd is that he was recording these conversations that he was having with his FBI handlers, so that after the fact, after the explosion happened, after uh, you know the FBI was like basically telling him to to f off and just keep keep being a part of this cell. Uh, after it happened, he showed journalists some of the recordings that he made with his FBI handlers of him talking about, oh, well, you know, like, you know, we can stop this. Like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me when. I'm ready to stop he this. Offered, yeah, he offered to put in a harmless powder instead of what uh, the an ingredient for the explosive. Uh, the yeah. Was <laughs> and then the and FBI. Said, no, don't do like, that. Yeah, no, don't do that. Don't Use do the that. good shit, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here again, you have intelligence agency and law enforcement protection of an ongoing covert process. And of course, this cell was connected to Omar Abdul Rahman and Ali Muhammad, both of whom I believe were listed as unindicted co-conspirators in that case. Um, 
Yeah, they use but they they, get, they get Sheikh Rahman for like a bigger slew of things that are connected to the Trade Center bombing, and I, I think the Trade Center bombing was among them, but it was like the landmarks bombing plot. It was like a whole it was thing a landmarks plot. Yeah, but I think that the Trade Center was a part of it as well. But I, either way, they do get uh, the blind Sheikh Abdel Rahman, and they throw him in jail. Since the main focus is Afghanistan, we'll come back to some of these 90s issues later, but that are all over the place, especially post-Afghanistan war. But the entry to Afghanistan, they do a good job explaining this. In particular, what Blowback does really well, I mean, they give you a sense on, of the, on the whole that if you're listening to this and you're only halfway familiar with it, I think you're going to come away very furious uh, and disgusted by the brazen criminality, and immorality, just inhumanity of the people running U.S. foreign policy, the hell that they subjected the people of Afghanistan to just for geopolitical gain is, uh, is so horrific. Uh, it just goes beyond what the, the morality of you know, people who are not uh, either psychopaths or people who have not been rendered functionally psychopathic by really immoral institutions. It's, it's really something. And the what they do show very well in that I, I mentioned this when I interviewed we interviewed Noah. What they do do a good job demonstrating is that that guy, um, Amin, who was a former mm. uh, University of Columbia guy who'd been at the U.S. and then later becomes general secretary of the Afghan Communist Party, gets his a PhD I think in '62 from Columbia, and his when he eventually uh, is in a position of power in Afghanistan right after. Uh, a coup, he is very aggressive about disrupting the traditional institutions of Afghanistan. He's, um, it, it's, he, he goes way farther in ways that the Soviets' understanding is going to cause problems with the society of Afghanistan. And they actually tell him to chill out. They make a better case for him, a circumstantial case, but a very powerful one, uh, of him being a CIA asset. And I think that is that part is even worse because a lot of people who do study U.S. imperialism are aware of the Brzezinski interview or Bob, or, or a Bob Gates memoir where they admit that they induced the Soviet invasion before, uh, you know, prior to um, the Soviets actually coming in. That they took steps on purpose. That they were supporting the Mujahideen to provoke a Soviet invasion. Essentially, that much is known. The Afghan trap. Right, but then it actually seems that that was a later part of the trap and that the earlier trap was really, uh, I mean, himself, that he was put in there as a U.S. asset uh, to, and a communist. I mean, they put in a guy who was more radical, who would have pursued more radical communist policies because that suited their agenda, which was just an imperialist agenda. It, what they were trying to do was in, in some ways not even as relevant to communism versus capitalism. It was just, this is our geopolitical rival, and we're going to uh, destabilize them by destabilizing a country on their uh, in, in their hinterland, uh, but but right in their backyard, and and very and a part of a bigger a bigger part of a Muslim area that is under their control, but potentially open to disruption or destabilization. So it was so calculated and vicious uh, what they did, provoking this war, and the fact that they're gleeful about giving them their own Vietnam is so sick because it wasn't that Vietnam, like it wasn't as though it wasn't really 
turnabout or it wasn't really anything commensurate to what the U.S. did in Vietnam. It was it wasn't as though the Soviets did clever things to trick the U.S. into going into Vietnam. The U.S. Yeah. Took, made every stupid decision and greedy decision uh, leading up to the fact or leading up to the, the Vietnam War. And largely, there's a lot of reason to believe that a major motivation for that war was to make sure that Indonesia would not be that they could deal with Indonesia in a way of their own choosing. Uh, and they did that. You know, there was no way that you would have had a united communist, uh, you know, contiguously connected block from, I mean, I know there's ocean too, but if you had like China and Vietnam was allowed to be communist and Indonesia is very close to there, you could have had Sukarno at least stay in power as an independent nationalist and they would never have gotten the region's biggest oil deposits, which were in West Papua, nor the world's biggest gold deposits if they had not been able to do what they did in 1965. So these things are related and they are just vicious beyond measure uh, the, the way these things work. So th giving them a Vietnam is, is it encapsulates what, how psychotic these people are because really both cases, there didn't need to be a, a war in Vietnam. There didn't need to be a war in Afghanistan. The U.S. empire was responsible for both of them. And you can't even conceptualize the hell that the people of those countries have been uh, forced to live through. Exactly. And what it reminds me of, we were talking about this earlier, is, you know, the current situation in Ukraine, where, uh, you know, I've made references to the like the Ukrainian trap. Uh, again, you have a situation in which, you know, there's a simmering conflict, and there seems to be a way to, uh, you know, make peace, there seems to be a way to uh, go to the table and talk with the various parties and come to some sort of arrangement. If the US were to tip their, you know, put their hands on the scales and tip it in some direction, they might have been able to uh, avoid a catastrophe, but instead they deliberately made the choice that we want the situation to exacerbate uh, because, uh, you know, having a crisis situation on the Russian border is good for us uh, because, uh, you know, I, I keep citing this uh, Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed from December of 2021 when, uh, you know, Russian troops were massing on the Ukrainian border uh, in the, you know, what's clearly kind of a, a threat of invasion. Um, uh, the uh, and guy the, at the Atlantic the Russians Council, were issuing statements about how this was very unacceptable too. The yeah, they're there, and they were trying. They were submitting draft treaties to the U.S. about okay, well, here's the things that we can talk about. We can talk about missile placements. We don't really want NATO to expand to Ukraine. That's like kind of a red line for us. And uh, you know we don't we don't like this idea of a constant state of civil war in Ukraine. Well, the U.S. plan was to say, uh, and this was articulated by John Denny at the Atlantic Council in this Wall Street Journal op-ed, that the U.S. shouldn't negotiate because no matter what happens, whether or not Russia invades, it looks good for the United States. It's good for the United States if Russia doesn't invade because then they look weak. But if they do invade, then uh, a it will allow the U.S. to give Russia its known Vietnam, and they use that. They use that sort of language, like bogging down Russia by funding a bunch of, uh, you know, paramilitaries and uh, funding the Ukrainian army to bog down Russia. So that would be a good thing. Another good thing would be uh, it would strengthen the pro-NATO consensus around Europe, which, yeah, I mean, that seems to be what happened. It's a major propaganda victory to, to cast. There's actually a big setback recently. I think it's Slovakia. They had some anti-NATO yeah. victories uh, from politicians that there. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, interesting development in this whole thing, and we can talk about whether or not 
much like the uh, Afghan trap, the Ukrainian trap may have backfired in a very real way. Uh, but the third reason that they said that they uh, that war with Russia would be good was that it would give the U.S. Uh, the the reason to sanction the hell out of Russia and undercut uh, uh, what could be an economic competitive bloc in in the East. Yeah, so you thought, had all they these thought reasons. That was a good idea. It's just it's so they funny. Thought, yeah. It just shows how the the thinking has become muddled in the U.S. because everything that they thought they could get away with has gone badly for them. It was yeah. Ukraine. With Afghanistan, they pulled it off. Well, yeah. Well, it, it, in a way, right? Like there's. You have the the U.S. leadership, the the grand planners. They're probably like, "Oh yes, this is very good." Uh, even if they some of the stated objectives of bogging down Russia might not have panned out the way they wanted, they still get you know all the the people in their fancy clubs to uh, put on "I support Ukraine" stickers. You know, they're giving standing ovations to Nazis <laughs> from uh, just because yeah. they they fought oops. Russia. So yeah, oopsie. But you, you have this pro-NATO consensus that's very strong, especially in elite circles among America, and pushing Russia to war was a major cause of that. So they might consider that a success. In the case of Afghanistan, um, they were able to, uh, I mean, they, they were probably like dancing and popping champagne because they understood that Russia, uh, that the USSR did not really want to go into Afghanistan the same way that even the CIA admits now that Putin was looking for a way out uh, days before he invaded Ukraine, and very uh, and and as soon as he invaded Ukraine, and right it. after, uh, and the same with the Soviets. I mean, when that's they why he went in with a pretty small force. In in that's why when I was commenting on this early on, people were saying that they oh they were defeated. In, it was so epic it, right outside of Moscow, and I was like, I know from the Iraq War, all those discussions, how much what size force it takes to occupy militarily a country. I don't, they're not, Putin is not so stupid that he and his generals wouldn't have no clue of what kind of force would be needed for what you're saying. Hence, the more, the obviously more logical inference is that this was not an intention to sack and occupy Kiev. Like, so why were they all yeah. saying this? This is just an example of them. They're, they're not going to tell you why the war started, and they're not even going to tell you what the uh, the other side is even seeking to achieve they're going to present everything in the most alarmist way uh that suits their uh, agenda which is you know that's not how it's supposed to function in a democracy but i don't even know is that <laughs> do i even need to say that at this point yeah i think it's uh, uh built into our <laughs> our analysis of what's going on but yeah. i mean much like uh, uh much like um uh, ukraine and afghanistan like you said it allowed the powers that be to cast the USSR and Russia in a negative light as like the obvious uh, uh, unequivocal uh, aggressors in the situation. You still, I mean, even in my uh, early education about U.S. history and U.S. interventions and invasions, you you would see, uh, you would run into talks or transcriptions of Chomsky talking about how well, you know, U.S. imperialism is just as bad as Soviet imperialism in Afghanistan. And even now you have, like, leftoids uh, and, uh, like, the, the 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 kinds of people who are typically... You would put on the anti-imperialist spectrum, at least. Well, you have any, even people like them saying, well, you know, this Ukraine example is just a, an example of pure Russian aggression. And, and so there's so many parallels between the two. Uh, that it's it's eerie, 
and we're seeing the same sort of propaganda uh, propping up, uh, you know, Islamic extremists as you know brave freedom fighters. And here we have like actual Nazis being propped up as brave freedom fighters. And I mean, I keep making this this dark joke about how pretty soon you're gonna like in in ten years you're gonna be asking about uh, why does Europe and the the West have a Nazi problem of all these Nazi paramilitaries and uh, fascist mercenaries running around causing havoc. Uh, could that have maybe something to do with our policy of arming Ukraine? Uh, just like, you know, you had all these uh, radical Islamic jihadists running around after the uh, Operation Cyclone in uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and another parallel is that they're both extremely corrupt. I mean, I was just listening to, like, um, yeah, I, I really like how they add uh, these news segments, uh, these news clips in blowback. Uh, but, like, one of them was talking about how um, they would be lucky if 20% of the weapons actually got through because they're so corrupt because they get diverted from the front uh, before they can even get there. Well, you have the same situation in Ukraine where, uh, you know, there was a CBS report uh, about how maybe 30% of the weapons are being diverted from the front lines before they get there. Now, because of the extreme nature of our propaganda system, uh, CBS was pressured and forced to retract that story and, uh, you know, delete it and disavow it and say, oh, you know, we, sorry, we didn't mean to push P uh, Putin's propaganda. Uh, but, you know, the story has been confirmed by other sources. And, uh, I mean, you even have African leaders talking about how uh, they're, they're not very happy that weaponry from Ukraine is turning up in their own countries. Uh, so, so we have that. And yeah, that would be uh, much a very like interesting thing to look into, the Al-Qaeda or ISIS the uh, Azov to ISIS weapon pipeline or something? <laughs> yeah, well, don't even get me started on the, the some of the Chechen militias that are running around. I mean, it, who knows what this situation in Ukraine is going to end up like because, you know, after the Afghanistan, uh, Operation Afghanistan Part 1, after that happened, the, the country descended into, you know, a, a warlord state where warlords were duking it out for control over the country and uh, eventually the Taliban took charge. In the case of Ukraine, it's an open question to how much the central government will be able to maintain authority at the end of all this, especially if there's deep disagreements about how uh, a negotiated settlement was achieved. And, you know, uh, mark my words, a negotiated settlement is the only way that this is going to end, bar the complete destruction of Ukraine or the entire world. Uh, so it's going to end a negotiated settlement, but a lot of people aren't going to like that. And then you have the fact that a lot of these militias in Ukraine, they they are only loosely connected to the uh, the full national forces, right? You know, um, the the Chechen battalion, like the, the Sheikh Mansur battalion, who uh, you know they've been involved in Ukraine since 2014, and they do have ties to ISIS, given the fact that a lot of their members trained in ISIS camps in Syria, um, but they are currently operating in Ukraine. Uh, as a unincorporated paramilitary, uh, they're not. They don't take orders from the central Ukrainian government, and uh, they're independently. They were independently funded up by that same guy, uh, Igor Kolomoisky, who funded the Azov Battalion, and who was behind the rise of President Zelensky. Uh, so you you have a situation where, if the uh, you know the, the formal legal system, the formal political system breaks down. Uh, it might end up something like Afghanistan with like different competing factions duking it out. Uh, and that's obviously going to be a complete disaster. 
but it's a, a natural it's a it's a predictable consequence to the u.s policy of encouraging ukraine to blow itself up i mean it's yeah. just i think partition it, is has already happened and that's going to be a different scenario than afghanistan so i think in a way it's gonna it's i don't see it necessarily having a there may be echoes that go that we see from earlier misadventures especially some of these militias that can function autonomously after the fact and who knows how that will go i'm guessing that you're going to have a border which is similar to a border that's existed there for a long time um like the last eight years over well over centuries the the, there's traditionally the the, like a there's a tradition there's a kind of border that's been in place the the current the current ukraine or the current i won't say current but the ukraine of like you know before a few years ago was a very artificial creation it was uh those places weren't combined like that it's why there's really two ukraines and it it doesn't really make any any sense politically historically culturally for them to be in the same country and this is what why there's this is a, a part of the problem and for the u.s that's just grist for the mill for them they can like oh there's divisions we can exploit this so they they're gonna partition it in a way i think it'll be cleaner than what happened in afghanistan but if you get back to Afghanistan, and then because all these things are relevant, what happens to these countries that get used and abused like this after the fact? I think Ukraine should look at Afghanistan and think about how close they want to be to America, although that ship has already sailed. But when we get into looking at like how um, Amin in Afghanistan seemed to, the guy that really provoked the Russian invasion, and how he was trained by the U.S., he was in the U.S. at U.S. universities in the 60s, this gets into like this area of like what was the U.S. really doing with radical Islam, and they they address this in uh, blowback. But a few things that they leave out, they don't discuss the, at least not that I remember, how the British Empire was responsible for creating the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't recall mm. them pointing about how Hassan al-Banna received backing by the Suez Canal Company, and that they functioned. You know, their origins are as a useful kind of strange, dark, you know, not deniable proxy for imperialist forces uh, to, to beat up on nationalists, secular nationalists or communists. So there's, that happens in the like 30s, or the late, the 20s and 30s, I think that's when they get established. And they don't point out how the U.S. after World War II essentially starts taking control of the, what the British had created. So they, they, they should have read the book Devil's Game. That was an, an omission because Devil's Game points is that out Dreyfus. Yeah, Dreyfus, who is a, an interesting dude, and I, I think he in the past was Larouche, but then he becomes more mainstream and starts writing for like the New York Review of Books, Mother Jones. So I don't. <clears throat> there's no Larouche stuff that comes through in Devil's Game at all, and he points out how this you know the, the radical political version of radical islam really comes from it can be traced back to this guy named al afghani who was actually an atheist it seems but had been in the late 1800s even like part of the british great game with russia uh, that he was a a shady person he was in the freemasons and then kicked out and he just believed that you could use islam as a political tool and then he set up the first islamist newspaper or his acolytes did and this is this goes, you know, is an early part of radical Islamism, if I'm remembering this aspect of Dreyfus's book correctly. But after World War II, the U.S. starts supporting these guys more. People like Saeed Ramadan, who was the sort of public face of the Muslim Brotherhood, and he's in Europe. I think he's stationed in Switzerland, maybe, because Nasser goes after all these guys. But the U.S., 
you know, there's a reason that Nasser outlaws the Muslim Brotherhood. It's because the CIA and MI6 are trying to use the Muslim Brotherhood to assassinate Nasser. To kill him. <laughs> and, and also in the 1950s, they, tried, they used radical Islamists to try to assassinate Sukarno. So it actually, the U.S. use of these people goes back further than what um, Noah and Brendan were able to include in, in that, which I understand. They, they study something for a season. I, you know, I couldn't expect them to be getting every single possible angle that they could have. But I think the, it, and this basically is information that only strengthens their general thesis about these mm -hmm. issues, that uh, they are connected to U.S. intelligence. But the fact that Saeed Ramadan was being backed by the CIA in the 50s and that they used Islamists to try to assassinate Sukarno in the 50s, this shows that this was on their mind. 1962, Amin gets his Ph.D. Uh, in, at Columbia University. I got to believe that he had some agency backing their Columbia as one of the most shady, oligarch-connected institutions. university. Yeah, I mean, it's a Rockefeller thing. It's like Chicago and Columbia are the two most Rockefeller-connected entities and to me that it the rockefeller thing is huge because that's brzezinski and that is some something happens in u.s policy that changes it from kennedy to as i said earlier changes it from kennedy to johnson so you have the kennedy thing he's pretty hard on ben-gurion and everything else under johnson they basically laugh off the uss liberty and just cover it up oh oh you, you killed our soldiers they got in the way of your strafing we're so sorry about that you know like that's a big shift from kennedy who tried to balance these things to johnson and then in the 70s, you had the beginnings of this uh, Brzezinski's thesis that start to be applied. So we wrote about this in an article for Covert Action Magazine that 19, and I think they do mention some of these things in, in blowback, but I don't remember the years that they actually say they come in. 1972, the Asia Foundation, which is a CIA cutout, Rockefeller and CIA, um, they begin to fund these Islamists at Kabul University, and that was where Gobud and Hekmatyar got backed also you know he was funded by these people and they do mention Hekmatyar I don't remember if they say that part exactly but they may but this is the early 70s that to me is notable also in the night in that at that time period because that's when Brzezinski Brzezinski is the guy who's always looking at Eurasia and saying this is like the pivot point this is the arc of crisis that was his thesis mm -hmm. that they, they, this could be used to weaken the Soviet Union and they start, if you look at, like, the Bilderberger meetings in the, like, 70s. Bilderberger's also, like, very connected to David Rockefeller and all of those circles. And at that meeting, the one that I cite when I talk about the oil crisis, which may have been 1972, it's the same time. And they're saying at the time, they're talking about how oil prices need to go up. And they're also talking about political Islam as this thing that's, like, now it's here and it's really important. And to hmm. me, the subtext is nowhere. like, well, wait a second, how the hell did that happen? But, it, but when you know what happens afterwards and the way that it benefits these people who are like looking at the, you know, the global chessboard and they're, they're really interested in oil geopolitics and everything else, I surmise that the decision was made that they were gonna, there was going to be a qualitative shift in the way that the U.S. handled Middle East policy. So instead of balancing Israel and secular nationalists uh, in, in some sort of way that would be sort of even-handed, like how they intervened to protect Nasser— uh, on the side of Nasser against the Israelis and the French and the British in the Suez crisis. Like, they leave that approach behind totally. And Kennedy, who was even-handed to Nasser, with Nasser and Israel to try to be, perhaps even personally had more sympathy for Nasser, that approach is gone when Kennedy gets killed uh, and Johnson takes over. Not that I think that was the reason, as I've said. But this whole 
time period and leading up to the 70s while they're saying this and you have these Bilderberger people talking about this at the meeting, the same meeting that they're talking about oil prices. And then later you have a war between Arab states and Israel, which is used as an excuse uh, for the huge spike in oil prices. It just becomes clear to me that the U.S. takes a sort of even before the neocons, and it's kind of connected to Rockefeller and the supposed realists like Brzezinski, that they're going to weaponize Islam, that they're going to, A, back Israel more, and that they're also going to weaponize radical Islam. They're going to back Sadat, who himself is who is friendlier to the Muslims and, and basically re-legalizes the Muslim Brotherhood after he takes over. Maybe they even bumped off not Nasser. It's hard to say. Some people believe that, hmm. some people believe that Sadat himself poisoned Nasser. I don't have an opinion on that, but the CIA does seem to have helped Nasser or uh, Sadat to have consolidated power afterwards, and it does mark a shift towards supporting Islamist elements and also hardline Israeli elements uh, and not really looking for a balanced approach to Israel-Palestine. That shift happens at this time, and the early 70s period is crucial because it's you see the oil crisis and also the beginnings of like backing people like Hekmatyar and using... Uh, oil as a weapon to shore up the financial fortunes of the uh, of U.S. hegemony. This talk of uh, like the sea change, the shift in power, even before the neocons, but that like culminated in the neocons. I mean, like that, that's an interesting story by itself. Um, because you talk about in your book, um, you I think this might have been Peter Dale Scott's term, the the Prussians and the traitors, uh, you know, the different kind of uh, worldviews that dominate the U.S. policymaking circles, the Prussians being the more, you know, forward-facing basis types, the traitors the being the, yeah, the militarists, the, the traitors being the more, uh, you know, uh, Wall Street, like, we can all get rich, like, it doesn't, like, a, no ideological opposition to uh, businessmen yeah you know just businessmen what's good for business is good for me uh, and you know they capture that a bit in blowback with the i think the title of episode two or three was like the the bleeders versus the dealers uh which i, I hadn't heard before but i think uh it's sort of overlaps perfectly with this idea of pressures and traders and how uh in the 80s uh, you know you started seeing things like uh like like the team b gang uh, who was, you know, cooking up uh, intelligence about how dangerous the Soviet Union uh, is still, even though that they were on the verge of collapse. Uh, you still saw those people come into power and uh, take hold of American policy for, uh, I guess, e till now, basically. I mean, would you say that there's a significant, like, faction of dealers and traders uh, in, a, in American politics? Or is it mostly, pr it, it, it's difficult for me to, like, draw those lines today especially in the thick of it uh, in the thick of history right now rather yeah. than looking back well let me i'll i'll com i'll complicate it even more in a sense no oh, please because this because there 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 are at points times where you can see a cleavage there but it is so much more subtle than you would guess and let me give you an example that i hope would il illustrate this through the personage of brzezinski because i think he's the most important guy to understand here the supposedly more peaceful or commercial minded less militarist wing of the u.s establishment um once they once they get rid of the new deal liberals you know after they kill everybody in the 60s 
the more reasonable or less militaristic side is supposedly this Brzezinski kind of realist, but Rockefeller connected. So it's connected to big business because Brzezinski is not just a military, you know, mastermind plotting all the hatching all these plots. He's not like Paul Nitza. He's one of the founders of the Trilateral Commission, which is really all about the economic integration of the first world, essentially. So that Europe, Japan, and North America would be collaborating to run the hegemonic structure of uh, the U.S. empire. And so Brzezinski is, but he's also advocating these like aggressive moves towards the Soviet Union that are, that would seem overtly militarist, right? And he succeeds in, he basically sets the policy up under Carter that Reagan just runs with. So it's not mm -hmm. as though these Rockefeller people were like, the doves and then all oh, these crazy neocons like it starts under carter from the rockefeller and brzezinski wing of the establishment who also decides later you know carter is too much of a wuss we need this we need but this say they conspire deal. to get him out of there and then I they mean. get rid of him so <laughs> yeah. brzezinski's policy lives on and gets you know put on steroids under reagan but then you fast forward then the cold war ends and you fast forward to the 90s this to me is the, they also don't mention this in blowback. They could have done, they could have and should have done more on Brzezinski because he is the prism through which you can understand the apex of American power more, more better. You have a better grip of mm -hmm. it because of, you know, I mean, you know, you don't want to personify things too much, but he is someone that the, the elites, the oligarchs have entrusted to manage things. And so it's worth looking at what he was doing. So in the mid nineties, after the cold war, well, first of all, you have immediately where they go and set up shop in Azerbaijan, and they do cover this in blowback. That's cool. In 1991, yeah. it comes. They don't emphasize the Gladio B stuff as much, I don't believe. They didn't go into the Sabelle Edmonds thing with Nafiz Ahmed, which I believe is pretty solidly sourced and would have been worth mentioning, but it's controversial, whatever. But they go into there, and they set up Jihad HQ. Jihad HQ is in Baku. And when 9-11 happens, even up to that point, there are stories about how there was a lot of phone traffic from different cells to and, and the bombings that happened in the late 90s, like the embassy bombings in the USS coal bombing, that there was a lot of call, call many calls between those Al Qaeda people and the and, and the numbers in Baku, Baku Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. which is where Mega Oil, uh, which is uh, some kind of intelligence deep state entity with Richard Secord and Ed Dearborn, these Air America, Iran Contra guys, they set up this shady uh airline just like an air america thing and they do this jihadi drug smuggling operation out of in the in russia's former in the former soviet republic of azerbaijan and they stage a coup eventually and bring azerbaijan over to the u.s orbit but so they are they're going into the point is they're going into central asia right away and the first year they have a chance they go into azerbaijan and then use that as a kind of hq for geopolitical chicanery going forward by the mid 90s china and russia are saying that they want a unipolar world, that they are, that they are, they have resolved that they should work towards a multipolar, I say unipolar world. They've resolved that they want a multipolar <laughs> world and not a unipolar world because they, I, they see the moves that the U S is making to get right up, right up in their business in the former Soviet union and encircling them all bases. So they actually start issuing these statements about the need for a multipolar world. And 19, so they start this in the mid nineties, 1996, they create a bin Laden unit, okay, in the CIA. Now, it's not until... This is before he's been uh, indicted or uh, there's been, like, the Interpol call right. out on him. Yeah. Right. There's no Interpol. My understanding is that doesn't come until, like, 97 or so, and that's from Gaddafi. If I, but I yeah. could be... We could go back and look at the years. But regardless, that's sort of beside the point. 
They set up a, in 1996, they set up the Bin Laden unit in like January or February, right? But it's not until like later in the year, you know, in the final uh, four months of the year, like maybe September or, or, or later, that Bin Laden declares jihad against the United States, which is, hmm, how prescient of them that they knew this. And, but also, and in 1997, you have the publication of Brzezinski's book, The Grand Chessboard, which yeah. I see as, and that, that was actually commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations. In a sense, it's a similar document to the War and Peace Studies. If you look at the War and Peace Studies project as like how to understand the aftermath of World War II, I think Brzezinski's Grand Chessboard, also paid for by the Council on Foreign Relations, is a way to understand the post-Cold War world because they lay it out there. He talks about Ukraine and how you've got to get it right up in there and that'll really weaken Russia. He talks about Central Asia as being so important. And he even complains about, oh gosh, you know, it's tricky to get people to want to support these military ventures unless there's some sort of thing like a Pearl Harbor. Like he makes his own statement like that in 1997. And he is supposed to be, and sort of is, the reasonable wing of the establishment. So to my yeah. mind, it says that there was a consensus, a Prussian trader consensus, to the extent that you could, that those neoliberal, or you could also call them neoconservatives, neoliberals, but there was a consensus among these people that U.S. foreign policy was going to go, was going to operate as though it were pursuing rollback, except it's not even communism anymore. You're just trying to basically take over as much of the world as you roll can. Rollback literally any challenge that could possibly uh, affect you. Like roll, roll back everything. We're, we're going back for sovereignty for anybody. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, uh, go ahead. Michael, like Michael, Michael Burundi says, I mean, like the, the ruling elite in America have only ever wanted one thing, and that's everything. So it, it's only logical for them when they have the actual power, uh, when they stand almost completely unopposed in the world, uh, for them to shift their weight in a way that, I mean, it, their goal is to get them, get themselves to control the world. I mean, yeah. We like have cartoon villains of people trying to control the world, like take over the world. It's like, oh, that's what they're that's what they're doing. I mean, it they divide like... up the world, the whole world. They're like, this yeah. is Africom, this is SOCOM or whatever. This is like, yeah, like, do you have, is there any other country that has like you know entire different armies no. dedicated to different parts of the world? Like, has that ever happened before? Like, we have Africom, Eurocom, Indo Indocom, like Pacificom. We have Northcom here in America. We have Southcom for South America. Like it's it, like when you spell it out like that, I mean the the project becomes pretty clear. Uh, yeah. I, I also want to add that um, uh, listeners might be interested in um, uh, the most recent, I think the most recent episode of Ghost Stories for the End of the World, and they talk. Uh, Matt uh, talks about this uh, Azerbaijan business in a lot of detail, and um, one of one of his listeners posted like a, an excellent like compendium of sources on this subject, which, I mean, my main source for this has been like just Peter L. Scott's work on it. He's compiled like the most interesting stuff on it. So I'm still working my way or about to start working my way through some of that material. Um, so uh, go, go crazy people. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. It's the, that it's a key point to try to understand now. So, that, so, so Brzezinski with this manifesto, that's very important. I wish they would have talked about that a little more. But the other key point, getting back to, gosh, is there still any kind of restraining element? Well, it turns out that there is some kind of 
other coalition that Brzezinski is a part of, and you don't really see it until 06, 07. And it's that the guy, and it's, but it's really, it's quite crazy. It's Brzezinski testifying in front of the Senate in, in 06 or 07. And there were rumblings then that the neocons were up to, like there, there were people that were in higher places kind of leaking things about 9-11 at that time. It was a weird time. Like it looked like 9-11 truth might actually break through to the mainstream. <clears throat> and, and I think what happened perhaps is that elements in the establishment got wind of neocons wanting to go even crazier and go into Iran because whatever happens, this could be a coincidence or it could be related, but the same time that you have this semi flirting with mainstream acceptance from nine 11 truth elements, you have Brzezinski going in front of Congress and, and testifying that we must not go into Iran. It would be a catastrophic debacle. There will be an attack, and it will be blamed on Iran, and then the U.S. would use this as a pretext for a disastrous war that would engulf the region and damage American prestige and national security. So he's basically like saying, like, oh, he's this, you know, elder Wiseman saying, I mean, he's, he's coming very close to saying that they're, he's implying that they're going to stage an attack. When he says there's going to be an attack and it's going to be blamed on Iran, like, how else do we interpret that? Does he... Does he really think Iran is going to attack the United States and invite an attack? I don't believe well, this that's is what he's the to say. It, you you mentioned that there's a, like a, a faction that was like pushing back against this, and that Brzezinski might have been like uh, one of the public faces of that. I mean, that that seems plausible because it was in 2007, I believe, that a bunch of intelligence guys leaked to Seymour Hersh about the plan for the the redirection, which yeah. was, I mean, we were talking about these uh, you know these networks utilizing political Islam. Well, uh, one of the quotes from Seymour Hersh is that uh, the Saudis were like, well, you know, we don't care if Salafis are throwing bombs. We just, well, what matters is who the Salafis are throwing bombs at. And they're basically saying that, well, we have control over these, uh, uh, you know, Islamic militias, these Salafi jihadists, and uh, we can use them in overthrow, in overthrow and regime change operations. And then lo and behold, not like three, four years later, the Libya happens where they use some of these Salafis to overthrow Gaddafi. And then well, Syria yeah. happens the next year. And, right. uh, you know, these Salafis are try are attempting to overthrow Assad. And this is exactly what was predicted in uh, Seymour Hersh's article on the redirect. So it seems to me that there was a faction within the United States government who was uh, pretty worried about what was going to happen. And uh, they talked to, they, they used Seymour Hersh as they have in the past to get the word out there. Like they used him to get rid of James Angleton by exposing Operation Chaos. I mean, they use Seymour Hersh to uh, sort of warn the public about this insane plan that in part did end up taking place. I mean, they didn't end up invading Iran, obviously, but, uh, you know, the plan to overthrow Syria and the plan to overthrow Libya, that, that, right. came, that came to be. And that is where we get to the, to the final crazy thing from Brzezinski in this whole story which I think I'm the only person that I know of that's ever commented on this, but I also thought that I invented the McJihad term, but it turns out I didn't. So it took me a while to discover <laughs> that. So somebody else may have made this argument somewhere, but if somebody wants to send that to me, that'll be interesting. Here's what I'm saying. And go, some of you people can go back and check the dates, but there's this weird. So now we have Brzezinski in the NO7 and he's like, it, there'll be an attack and it's really blamed on Iran. And it would be catastrophic to attack them and well, using this as a pretext. Whatever, That's going to be right? a cold open. You saying that yeah. in that voice? Uh, <laughs> I don't know that who anybody would even think Brzezinski if they heard that. But 
set that aside. <laughs> Bites a cock. So he does that, and then they ride out the rest of the Bush Cheney years, and there's no crazy war. Well, Brzezinski's guy gets into office. So, you know, you know, the Obama was at Columbia, and he had more of a relationship to Brzezinski. There's that one video where, where somebody tells Brzezinski that Obama denied that they had a relationship, and Brzezinski looks like, what? He said that? How could he say that? <laughs> right? It's, it's a strange... <laughs> It's a strange exchange. So I assume, you know, that Obama and Brzezinski, that Obama comes out of that group that, you know, those circles that Brzezinski would be a part of. It makes perfect sense. Wall Street, high finance, and so on, right? I mean, those would have been the people behind Obama. That's why he got, he raised way more Wall Street cash than John McCain in 2008, which I guess some of that went to pay for my campaign organizing on his behalf. So thanks, thanks, guys. Um, but 2010, it's, you've got Obama, he's been in office. And I believe that this is the chronology of it, that Brzezinski is speaking at maybe the Chicago or a Canadian meeting even of the Council on Foreign Relations. I believe it is the CFR, CFR event, even though it might be in Canada, even though it's an American organization. It may have even been in Canada or it may have been in Chicago. But he stands up and he gives this speech uh, to the group. And it's a small group. It's like a dinner thing. And he's saying that, like, the world is no longer going to tolerate disrespect. People are rising up against illegitimate authority, and there is a yearning for freedom from the common people. Okay. And if you're me, you're thinking, like, what the hell Brzezinski saying now? Like, oh, God, what does this possibly mean? But then what happens, like, a little bit after that? That's when you get the Arab Spring, which was this. If you don't recall the Arab Spring, it was such bullshit. The, the liberal shitheads were all... All the suckers who always like whatever humanitarian war, they were all talking about the people rising up. And if you were like saying like, what's this about? You know, then you were like, oh, you don't believe anything. You're, you're an agency denier. You're a white person who erases the agency of these oppressed people of color. It's so imperialist. You're the imperialist if you think that that's a CIA operation because you're denying the agency of people of color in other countries you you're the imperialist if you think it's a cia operation like you would get those kind of arguments but it's like what happens at the arab spring it's like you know we know that google they were like people in tahrir square were like i named my child google or whatever it was like dude why would you what you think google is your friend you think google is a liberating force for democracy you know, if Google and Facebook were involved with that, you had all those Twitter accounts from Libya right away. I mean, it was like, I think it was the first time, although people weren't aware of it at the time, unless you were like me and were like already kind of, you know, would be perceived as paranoid, but you're very suspicious of U.S. foreign policy. Nobody was saying that about Libya at the time. Like, okay, everybody in Ukraine or in Libya now is really on Twitter and they're all like talking about like how terrible the regime is. Like, I don't buy that. I think it was a huge, I think it was a big spectacle. And then like, how does Brzezinski call it on hit it on the nose like that oh but but and what happens with all those operations the uprising of global you know this this uh this unrest that he speaks of and it just happens that the only concrete things that come out of it uh, are advance his insane agenda for like knocking off all these countries in the middle east i mean so that that the that angle i think should have been explored but i'm probably the only one who's fixated on brzezinski this way not because I'm that interested in him as a person, but just the, he is at the nexus of so many foreign policy decisions and U.S. oligarchs that, like, it's worth looking at. And it's disturbing when you do look at it because, damn, it's kind of a straight line. 
Yeah, like Brzezinski's definitely one of those. Uh, I mean, I don't even want to call him like a Forrest Gump of, of like history, just because. Like, yeah, it seems he's sort more of trivialize it. Yeah, it seems like it sounds. It makes it seems like he wasn't like behind the stuff or di- didn't have a an influential role in all of it. But I mean, as a character, he's very interesting. And I, and I pulled up uh, <laughs> an old Mint Press article about Brzezinski and his influence within the Obama administration. And yeah, it seemed like he was talking about the. Uh, uh, he was in favor of like you know pushing the Libya thing. He was more circumspect about the uh, uh, intervention in a, uh, against Assad because he was like, well, you know, there's uh, Gaddafi was you know more vulnerable than Assad was, and there's no there's no telling what would actually happen to if we uh, if we did try and do a Gaddafi on Assad. And you know, he turned out to be right about that. Um, uh, but it, it, it's just interesting. I mean. You clearly know that he didn't just suddenly have an, a, a change of heart about the nature of U.S. empire. Like You know that he's not like, oh, oops, uh, the Afghan trap, that was bad, and uh, we suffered for it, so therefore I'm in favor of pacifism. No, I mean, he's just going on and saying that, well, there's a different way of doing empire now. There's different justifications we have to use, and there's different language that we have to use to get the liberal interventionists or the liberal folks on our side as interventionists. And it seems to have worked. <laughs> yeah, I think he knew that the halo, the U.S. halo, had really been diminished by Bush, who was a crass and gauche character, especially and Cheney with his connections to Halliburton and other oil companies. Just, uh, make it. just that they were their brand was so bad that if they they couldn't get away with anything, they'd have to have a better salesman. And Obama was the perfect guy for that. I mean, that just seems so of a piece with Obama when you stop and think about it. Like it seems cosmopolitan and enlightened. You know, he's this very polished. Uh, black person in the United States, like it makes the U.S. seem superficially less, you know, backward and mean, like you might associate with the U.S. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a success story. It's like, well, I mean, you know, from setting aside his actual heritage, but it, you, it's a success story about like you know one of the most repressed minorities in this country has now risen to be. Well, let's say the that's historically. I'll just we'll just say the most. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I'm the, trying to check the you the on most. that one. <laughs> yeah well i mean i was talking about like a, a global on a global scale like one of the most repressed minorities in, uh, in like the world i guess uh, uh but in, in either case it's it, it was good propaganda for americans to elect someone who doesn't have a white face and even if like uh he he ended up being a butcher he ended up being uh you know it, it's interesting uh, blowback uh i think it was noah who said this in, in the show he points out that like the lies that were used to sustain the Afghanistan intervention were worse under Obama than they were under Bush, uh, just because you know you had the the surge uh, oh, yeah, in Afghanistan was, and the, the constant talk about everything yeah. about the progress was just utter. It was bullshit. all bullshit. It was all it was all nonsense. It was all fake. Uh, but you had this guy who's a smart guy and he knew he knew a that he was being lied to about his generals in Afghanistan. Uh, or by his generals in Afghanistan, he knew that his generals were deliberately trying to box him in into a strategy that was doomed to fail. But, uh, I mean, by virtue of either, you know, his ideas about how the world should operate or just the fact that he's personally incapable of, uh, I guess, sticking up for any principle that he has. Yeah, uh, he complains he about them... it. He says, like, you've given me three choices. Two of them are about the same, and one of them... Is, is worse than what we have. Yeah. I really and only then, have one choice. 
and then and then that's it. He's like, "Well, I guess I'll just do it." Because yeah, the and then he goes and do, does it. Like he, he like it's in it's even in like the mainstream like Bob Woodward account of his White yeah. House years. It's like, well, they were clearly railroading him, and he clearly let himself get railroaded because he saw the military not as you know his his army, not as something that he's commander in chief of, but he saw them as a constituency that needs to be managed, uh, that needs to be placated. And needs to be weighed against other interests, like how am I going to look on TV, or how is this going to play with uh, you know my liberal friends, things like that. And that's uh, the, he was the perfect person at the right time to be steamrolled by the military establishment on a key issue that uh, the that establishment believed uh, was like in the vital interest. Like, and it happened with Libya again. It partially happened in Syria, although. Uh, it, Brzezinski and others were like cautioning against that and uh you know he did show some restraint on things like Syria he did show some restraint on things like Ukraine uh so you know it's not it's a it's a mixed bag I keep thinking about how Peter Dale Scott says that yeah he goes back and now he looks at these presidents as sort of stopping the worst aspects of uh the deep political establishment which is true to an extent but since I hate them all I'm not going to dwell on that so much I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to give, Obama set the stage for terrible bloodbaths in Syria and Ukraine both, so I don't, I'm not looking to exonerate him in any way, shape, or form uh, <laughs> on that score, and I, that whole era is very frustrating for me, because he basically let the, I mean, with the Afghanistan thing, he let the generals treat him the way parents treat small children you know like you tell them right is the kids like i don't want to brush my teeth and they're like all right you can brush your teeth for five minutes or for 10 minutes and then they'll take the choice they'll <laughs> five minutes all right and then it's like they're until they get a little older they don't really realize what you've done it works on them like that obama's not that dumb and he even said it like oh, I had to make it up. you guys choice. are really giving me zero alternatives here he knew what and was then, happening, and he let yeah. it happen to him. So yeah, it was, that was sad. And, and the way blowback covers this period, I mean, I think they do it very, yes. they do it very well. I mean, because uh, you know, I, this was uh, at a time where you know I was coming of age. Uh, I mean, barely. I was like a you know high schooler and middle schooler, uh, watching o Obama on the evening news, watching the war, thinking like, okay, well, you know, can't be that bad. Obama's president, and then like listening at NPR about all these, uh, you know, occasionally you hear about, oh well, Afghanistan was worse than we thought, and I'm like, oh, it's okay. O Obama's there, like surely. Yeah, he's gonna handle it. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's gonna, gonna handle it. He's yeah, like he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be like there push. if he wasn't smart. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Little did I know that everyone in the, the media just, uh, I mean, just to put it lightly, they dropped the ball on that one. To put it not lightly, they were just sycophants, and they yeah. were they were wrapped up in the charm offensive. Uh, but Obama's it, like it, a game show host, man. He, he's got a, ta yeah. a talk show host. He's got some charisma. Like, honestly, there's very little difference between him and, I think, substantively, than him and, like, your average Democrat, like like somebody like Hakeem Jeffries or something, the difference is that Hakeem Jeffries is sort of a dipshit, so he comes across as corny, you know. Whereas, but Obama was is that his delivery is actually smooth. But he's like, a smooth man, he's in, a smooth of, man. In terms of what they do and what they deliver, 
like Gavin Newsom uh, and uh, or Hakeem Jeffries, they're like the same as Obama. It's just like this. They have this this strange bimbo man bimbo archetype <laughs> in, in, that's come across in recent years. Obama had had a version of it, uh, but like uh, the guy in Chile seems like that. Macron, oh, um, Trudeau. Uh, oh, yeah. Gavin Newsom. It's just like the. It's like in the '80s they talked about like you know Attack of the Bimbos with like uh, Fawn Hall and Jessica Hahn and and uh, Donna Rice, right? Like these women in the '80s. I ne- like, never heard of the, the the Attack of the Bimbos era. Of yeah, it was US like because era. there were all these random, you know, somewhat conventionally sexy women. If you are into sexy women, you might think they are. <laughs> Fawn Hall was, I believe, Oliver North's secretary, and then she shredded a bunch of documents for him, and I think she was in Playboy, maybe. Jessica Hahn was the secretary of James Jim Baker, who had this crazy televangelist network, and it was a big scandal. She may have gone in Playboy, too. I'm having a hard time remembering who was in Playboy and who wasn't. And Donna <laughs> Rice is the one that brought down Gary Hart, but it actually seems like an operation because she had previously been like on Khashoggi's yacht as like one of his ladies, and then later in life, she started running a nonprofit uh, for people who've been trafficked, so it's like, what the hell really happened back there? But yeah. Anyway, yeah. now we've got the now they're the, they used to be sort of like bimbos that were used to bring down powerful people, but or or they get involved in the story one way and they make it more tawdry because of the public imagination. But now it's more like the the, the bimbos are dudes and we're making them heads of state. It's the himbo PR offensive. <laughs> I mean, they're taking over the world. Now, the last thing I want to mention here because we've gone on a bit, but I I can't end without. We can't wrap this up without me mentioning my one, my bigger beef with uh, with with blowback and their bigger omission. Which, by the way, everybody, if you haven't heard it and you're interested in this material, you really should, should listen to blowback. It's totally worth watching. And if I'm going to talk about the things that are at, left out of it, that's just because I'm really interested in the subject. And for people that have already seen blowback, maybe they'll appreciate that because it expands on some things that aren't covered in blowback. But the thing that they left out is the what Peter Dale Scott and I wrote about for Covert Action Magazine, and it's also at AmericanException.com, and then Peter Dale, or sorry, Pepe Escobar later also cited our article, and that was very cool because he was the last person to talk to Masood, and he said, like, he basically endorsed our interpretation of it. That is that Masood was not killed by al-Qaeda uh, directly from bin Laden and Mohammed al-Zawahri. That was a cover story that seems to have been fabricated out of whole cloth because you can look in new, mainstream news sources and trace what really happened and where this order came from to that led to the drafting of a letter of introduction for the people posing as media, uh, jur- posing as journalists who uh, got the, who secured an interview with Masood and then killed him. You know, they, they, they were suicide bombers. And this call for this came from a U.S. prison, a guy who was under total surveillance and was, there were restrictions about his communication. Somebody later even went to jail. This attorney who was representing him was like jailed because she seemed to have violated some part of the uh, laws about how he wasn't supposed to be able to talk to anyone. He would have been under total surveillance and uh, they wouldn't have let communication escape like that without knowing about it. And we learn about that they had intercepted things to this effect. We put that in the article. Essentially, this, this art, the message from the blind sheikh who was in jail, the same guy from the World Trade Center, the same guy who'd been involved in the Bosnian Jihad. He had been in Afghanistan earlier. He's this crazy, uh, Abdel Rahman is his name, but he's more often known as the blind sheikh. He was in a maximum security prison for like the worst terrorist suspects or, or convicts. 
And somehow he was allowed to transmit a message to a an intermediary who's like a low post office employee or something who was also under surveillance, who passed it on to a guy in England who then passed it on from there to the people who are assassins. And the you can trace this in, through mainstream sources, and then later it just gets erased, the fact that it came from here. It's like it gets memory hold, and only if you, like, Peter noticed it and nobody else really had or written, had written about it. But the, uh, the parts of the story as they give it, they don't make any sense. The story that they have is like, oh, we know that it was bin Laden uh, because we found a computer. There was a Wall Street Journal reporter who happened to walk into, like, a bazaar in Kabul and it's After like, oh, there's an old looted. laptop. I <laughs> guess I'll just take that dusty old laptop over there. Just just knock off the the camel shit, and uh, it'll be good as new. I'll just because I'm in the market for a new laptop, and I'll take that one. I don't really know that it had any feces on it or, or what. And probably camels would be not in the right location anyway. But just set that aside. Let's say goat shit. Regardless, he, he the story is that this guy walks into. A bizarre find a, a random, a random it up and it's like, bizarre. oh, this looks like all the secret plans of Al Qaeda. What a strange thing for me to find. I better submit this to the authorities to help them catch these dangerous terrorists. Uh, what are the chances that I would find this laptop? But this is a great story. Too bad I can't write about it because this is so important. You know, I mean, this is the most ridiculous story that you could imagine, in my opinion. This is like the most bungling spycraft, but. They accept it, and the and the story is they tell it's it, a it doesn't bad make, joke. yeah, they don't, it doesn't make any sense the way they talk about it later because they sometimes talk about the guy in Britain. There's another story in like 2011. It was in the UK Independent, and the British guy whose name was I believe Al Siri. Um, yeah, it was Al Siri. He is. They they mention how he was a part of the involved with the letter that went to, um, that was eventually used to kill Masood in that assassination plot. But they just totally omit the blind shake angle. Like, they don't explain how it got there. They're just like, oh, people think it was bin Laden. But there's, there's actually a story for that. If it was bin Laden, how did it go from bin Laden to maximum security prison blind Muslim cleric to, law, to you know, intermediary across the sea to Britain? When we know the blind shake was under total surveillance, we know in prison— and we know that the guy that we know that they had wiretaps on the intermediary as well. And they even spoke about this mission in Afghanistan that, that was in discussion. And they later th- put that woman in jail. Um, the, the lawyer who's I don't remember her name. It might have been Margolis, maybe, but I, I could be wrong about that. But they jailed a they jailed a woman in connection to the blind shake and his her statements to the public that because he was supposed to not be able to communicate with people. Um so it's a very bizarre case, and the mainstream account of it is totally wrong. But the reason it's super significant is Masood is killed on September 9. And on September 4, they had had a meeting about a political military plan for Afghanistan that presumably included you know, military plans and so on, political, military, like POLMIL was the abbreviation, P-O-L-M-I-L, I guess, POLMIL plan. <laughs> uh, but it... They talk about this on the 4th, so they're already talking about invading Afghanistan on September 4th. What would be the pretext? Hard to say. Then September 9th, they, uh, the one obstacle to the U.S. invasion is removed because Massoud was categorically opposed to U.S. boots on the ground. He told that to Pepe Escobar days before, uh, about a week before Pepe was the last Western journalist to see him alive. So, so they have this meeting. We need to go into Afghanistan September 4th. 
having this meeting. Let's go into Afghanistan. Here's our military plan. What we know, there's this guy that we're going to use, the head of the Northern Alliance, who's totally opposed to us going into there. Well, he dies on September 9th, thanks to a letter from uh, that we knew was coming. Now that problem's gone. September 10th, they have another meeting about another follow-up to the Afghanistan meeting about going into Afghanistan. But they don't have any reason to go in there until the next day. That arrives the next day. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really something. That's yeah. quite a coincidence. No, the, the Masood stuff, I mean, when I first saw your reporting about it, I wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as shocking to me. It, like, the impact wasn't as high to me because I didn't quite understand the significance of Masood and the alternative stories that had surrounded it beforehand. Like, I, you know, I, Masood was just, like, one of those background characters you hear about uh, in, uh, you know, the, this grand narrative. But then understanding the ways in which uh, the story about his murder was manipulated the, throughout even mainstream press reports. I mean, it's pretty astounding. And I think uh, in blowback, they describe it as um, uh, bin Laden doing a favor to the Taliban. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think it was. Which, which you know, on its face, if you know nothing that favor, else. If I, that, if, is it a favor if that, like, that's what leads to the invasion of, uh, of exactly. the, and the destruction of the Taliban? How much of a favor... They don't bring that up. Yeah. They do uh, point and, out, they do mention a couple things about, they, they paint Masood as more or less another Mujahideen, you know, low life. Drug dealing. I don't really yeah. care. I don't, have, I, I don't think he's a hero or whatever. And he was involved in the heroin traffic. And the other thing that they used to damn him is they, that he had a, that he was soft on sodomy or something. I mean, they, they point out that he had, some of his soldiers were raping some Soviet guy, and which, I have no reason to doubt or, or believe that necessarily, but it wouldn't surprise me. The, from my point of view, the U.S. wouldn't really care about that. They would care about, was he, was he enough of a nationalist that he didn't want the U.S. in there? And if so, let's get rid of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I know we've been going long, but uh, one, one of the things I did want to hit was uh, uh, talking about the, you know, the end of the story. You know, the, you know, the U.S. withdrawal after 20 years in Afghanistan. It was punctuated by... Uh, you know, all these, you know, we, we probably all remember watching it on TV and on Twitter and uh, uh, on our feeds of the uh, the withdrawal of Americans and the humanitarian uh, situation at Kabul airport. You know, these masses of humanity, you saw people like clinging to planes as they flew off and trying to r- run onto the airfields. Uh, but the, the, the button on that entire affair was the uh, the bombing attack that killed uh, you know, dozens and dozens of people, including several U.S. soldiers, um, that was that occurred right, a, you know, days before the end of the U.S. occupation, and uh, this was one of the first major attacks by the group ISIS K uh, that Americans had heard about. You know, they had been around for a while, uh, but ISIS K is an offshoot of, you know, the Islamic State proper, uh, the one that we all uh, all familiar with. Yeah, the, the franchise uh, that started in Syria and uh, Iraq, and largely as a result of, you know, the U.S. intervention in Syria that we talked about. Um, uh, but this ISIS-K bombing is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because there's a number of stories about how it actually happened, uh, how it came to be, uh, and what happened afterwards. Uh, so, like, the official story is that, you know, there was this, it was chaos and uh, U.S. officials uh didn't did there weren't good lines of communication and uh there were worries about a potential isis attack 
but then you know balls were dropped something was dropped somewhere and this guy was able to slip through whatever security there was and then detonate uh, his backpack or vest or whatever uh, and killing a lot of people uh, but it pretty quickly came out after that uh, even this was even reported by places like CNN that a lot of the deaths were not actually caused by the explosion but were caused by US soldiers just blindly firing in the confusion and uh, you know they talked to doctors who were like well you know these are definitely bullet holes and we found some bullets in these people uh, and uh, but the, you know the US Pentagon they came out with a report that said that oh well no none of that that that's all nonsense the, the, you might have thought they were bullet holes, but that's just the shape of the shrapnel that was expended in this explosion. Um, and then you saw, uh, you know, there were scattered reports of people saying that, oh, well, uh, yeah, actually the CIA told us uh, the exact identity of the guy to look for uh, before the attacks. And uh, ball again, balls were dropped somehow. Uh, and again, you started seeing, well, where did this guy come from? Well, he was held at a CIA prison at, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the Air Force Base, uh, but there was an Air Force Base with a large prison population that was largely abandoned as part of the U.S. withdrawal plan. Bagram, uh, apparently, maybe? It might have been, been Bagram. Um, the, the, it had thousands of prisoners. And so you would think that uh, since the, the withdrawal plan was in the works and publicly understood by military officials for... Uh, well over a year before this actual withdrawal date, you would think that there'd be some idea about what to do with these guys, these hardened prisoners. Uh, but apparently they couldn't think of anything to do. So when the Taliban took over, they uh, released a lot of these guys. And, uh, you know, this guy, um, uh, uh, the details are, there are a lot of details. Like this guy was once, he was captured uh, as part of a terrorist operation in India. Um, but, you know, he somehow made his way through security at Kabul, uh, and then hung out there for a little bit, and then ended up blowing up the the soldiers and starting this uh, this event. Uh, you know, he obviously did kill several people, but the fact of U.S. soldiers responding to it in such an insane way was largely omitted from Western press reports. It was reported in CNN a little bit, and then CNN did a follow-up report saying how the Pentagon still sticks by their version, and uh, they, that's really where it stood. Uh, since then uh, but you know again you have uh, these competing <coughs> excuse me competing narratives about what happened and uh, you had the uh, alleged potentiality of stopping this attack but you know u.s intelligence and their infinite wisdom uh, that seems to happen before these big events they seem to drop the ball information wasn't shared properly and uh, you know there are competing stories about what actually happened but uh, and none of it's resolved ever. Uh, but uh, you know the the myth is supposed to persist. And yeah, um, yeah it's just uh, one of those events that I'd need to spend more time looking into. Uh, there was a long five thousand page uh, military report uh, released on it, and uh, some people tell me that there's interesting information in there. But of course, mainstream media reported on it and said just said that oh well, it endorses the Pentagon's previous conclusions. Nothing to see here. I mean, the, um, but, the bigger issue is whoever it was that blew it up, assuming that they were, on the surface, actual dedicated Islamists, th these things can be made, like, everybody understands that, for example, Al-Qaeda is an organization that 
has a hierarchical structure in some way that decisions made at the top result in dudes at the bottom blowing some shit up. So a lot of this is like, who really would benefit from creating this kind of a, an entity besides the just letting it, whatever is involved in the bungling of the prevention or, you know, uh, investigation afterwards, you have this question of like, who, you know, he's at a U.S. place. It's just like with al-Baghdadi, al-Baghdadi, uh, the guy that led ISIS in, you know, in Iraq and Syria and all that. He was at a U.S. Pl a prison for a long time. And then they're like, you know, thinking maybe the conditions are bad and that's why it radicalizes them even further. But it's like, you know, okay, that's one explanation, but maybe there's other things going on at these prisons and maybe this, maybe the fact well, that the U.S. needs Islamist terror to be allowed to be able to intervene in this geopolitically important area, maybe that is a clue as to who is behind these jihadi networks. Because the U.S. has to have them to do what it wants to do, and we know it has all these crazy plans. It wouldn't be feasible without the Islamists doing the crazy shit that they do. This is the basic part of the whole thing that people should... Once people understand that, they become... I think they, they're a lot closer to getting the reality of what's going on. Yeah, and, and this ISIS case stuff is especially, you know, crazy. I mean, when you dig any sort of in any sort of depth into these terrorist networks, you always see uh, like the covert processes. But here, it seems that uh, you know, on, on the Wikipedia page of the founder of ISIS K and the alleged mastermind of uh, of the Kabul airport attack, I mean, this guy was a contractor at Bagram Air Force Base. And he was working for, he worked security for uh, one of the CIA's pet drug lords. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Abdul Rashid uh, something, and I'm blanking on the name. Uh, but I mean, uh, let's see if I can find it. But I mean, like, they have such deep connections and ongoing covert processes. When we talk about these prisons where a lot of these networks get formed, I mean, that's how, like, the original ISIS, like, in, in uh, Iraq and the Levant, yeah. uh, like how, that's how they started like in a u.s prison yeah like they were all in prison together and uh you know when they were let out they all joined back up and said hey well let's let's and wrench. they all were very well equipped with a lot of shiny new toyotas yeah with yeah guns and stuff mounted on the back which is there it's a very scrappy bunch of you know impoverished insurgents to have access to that kind of logistical uh, you know wherewithal yeah, and uh, I don't think Blowback talked about the, you know, the the reports that have been coming out from everyone from Hamid Karzai to, oh, yeah. uh, to Karzai. you know, uh, Le Lebanon, uh, the, like Hezbollah guys and the yeah, Iranian everybody... intelligence is saying this. Everyone is saying this, but uh, it's only been slightly reported in the U.S. press, but, but uh, about the U.S. support, covert support for creating an insurgency in Afghanistan uh, yeah. in the wake of the U.S. invasion. But there are airlifts from uh, Syria to Afghanistan, uh, yeah, aimed excellent. at, yeah, aimed at shifting some of these ISIS fighters out of there, out of out of uh, you know Syria and into Afghanistan. Uh, now the, they haven't been reported in the Western press, but every so often, if you look at like the the Syrian news agency, uh, they'll have a story about like uh, helicopters around Deir Zor, which is a major hub of where the U.S. is involved in Syria. They'll have stories about uh, helicopters transporting uh, uh, militants uh, to some unknown location. And you have, in the mainstream press, received reports about 
the you know the British and the UK cutting deals with ISIS in order to get their fighters out of certain cities uh, and have them transported to some unknown area uh, with U.S. protection. Um, and uh, that's been reported, but the implications of that, that the U.S. is collaborating to some extent with these guys and instead of completely obliterating them, I mean, like, you know it's not out of concern for, you know, like humanitarian concern that they don't want to, that they're scared of blowing up a city like oh yeah the america united hates, states is america scared hates blowing things up they're just they, yeah exactly just, that's the one thing they won't do exactly it's like oh there are too many women and children there so uh, yeah but uh, you know we can use depleted uranium in fallujah to to blow up the city when it when it suits us but you know when we have isis you know by the balls now it's time to put the kid, kid gloves on uh, but the but these have been reported by uh, uh, uh lots of people and uh, i know alex rubenstein has done some work on this uh Pepe Escobar has done some work on this, uh, but it seems that everyone in the region is saying that the U.S. is uh, backing the the rise of ISIS K in Afghanistan. Now, yeah. I, I can't I can't like say that with a hundred percent certainty, but it fits in with the U.S. M.O. Yeah. very very clearly, as Blowback has shown, as you've shown in your in your work, as Peter Dell Scott has shown. It fits perfectly within that MO, and it fits the stated geopolitical objectives of the actors uh, involved now. There, there are certain contradictions that might illustrate the fact that the state does not act with one mind, is that there is some, uh, there was some support uh, by the U.S. for the Taliban in running airstrikes against ISIS-K in Afghanistan. Uh, at some point before the uh, before the Taliban retook Kabul, and there has been a lot of you know talk in U.S. security circles about how can we use the Taliban as a partner to fight against ISIS K. Um, but you know, uh, the same way that there are FBI agents who are trying to actively stop terror plots, there are also some FBI agents who are like, "Hey, Ahmad Salim, don't replace the material in this bomb." There are also CIA agents who are saying, "Hey." Don't inform the FBI about uh, Khalid Amadar and Nawaf al-Hazmi entering the U.S. There are all these, uh, you know, it, 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 they don't act with one mind. Uh, I got the chance to uh, briefly ask a question of Colleen Rowley a few weeks ago, and I was talking about the uh, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, Yeah, she's a good example of that. She was a diligent yeah. FBI officer attempting to investigate a really important terror plot, and she knew that it was something important important and other people just blocked her and she would never be given a good explanation for it exactly exactly and then i asked her i was like well uh what do you think about this explanation that this information about the hijackers was being blocked from the fbi because the cia wanted to uh uh recruit them they wanted to recruit them um uh, that that's the excuse that uh, yeah that's you know that's what richard limited hangout or limited modified hangout yeah, and I was like, I was like, do you buy that? And she was like, well, uh, different levels of the bureaucracy act; they might uh, be working towards the same goal in their minds, but they, you know, people at the top might have different goals that they don't share with the people at the bottom. Yeah. So if some bureaucrat was told, like, hey, uh, you know, we need to be, uh, uh, you need to uh, let this slide because you know, you're, our, we have it here at the top. Uh, me, your boss, don't worry about it. Um, let these guys slide, ignore it. Uh, if something happens, it's not on you. 
Uh, the same way someone could be saying, uh, you know, there could be a significant constituency in the American military establishment that's saying, dude, we got to stop ISIS. We got to stop ISIS. But just like in Syria, there was also a faction that said, no, like ISIS growing is good. It'll put pressure on Assad. There might be a faction in the U.S. that says, well, ISIS growing is good in Afghanistan because it allows uh, not only is that uh, is uh, shitting on Afghanistan a longstanding U.S. goal, preventing the Taliban from getting legitimacy. That's a major U.S. goal. But also uh, there is a border between Afghanistan and China. Xinjiang uh, and, in particular, it's uh, exactly uh, it's and, right uh, there. Like the, Xinjiang is right there, and, and, and so, so creating a situation would be Evan. That would their mo would be to cultivate those so, to allow for destabilization of those areas, to especially not to allow the Taliban to stabilize that area and integrate it economically with new Silk Road style, you know, Belt and Road kind of infrastructure and transportation corridors, they would they would be totally against that. So it's yeah, it's pretty easy to see why they would back they, why they would a be backing ISIS, even if they appear to be and actually are even to some extent attacking them like they still they would do both. It's yeah. And if you look at the targets that ISIS is selecting in Afghanistan, uh, well, a, a lot of them and, you know, even military intelligence people who write about this sort of thing and like uh and like the jamestown foundation and stuff like that they'll talk about this they'll talk about that isis is deliberately targeting chinese development opportunities in yeah. afghanistan that's like, quite interesting well like who we we know that preventing that sort of development is one of the core u.s goals uh i mean and then we have these rumors of u.s support for these networks and then we have uh you know, a wealth of historical data to inform us about the U.S. M.O. Uh, so it's not unreasonable hypothesis to suggest that uh, the U.S. is cultivating, or at least elements of the U.S. Uh, political establishment, or the uh, what Scott calls the international, the supranational deep state. And, like different elements could be colluding to work with these mil militants to create a situation uh, that could somehow lead to advantageous U.S. policies in the future. That, that's that's likely the next chapter of Afghanistan is like the, this conflict between ISIS-K, uh, the, the question of Taliban legitimacy, the question of Chinese development in this country, and all of this. I mean, this is the grand narrative of uh, the current arc of, of world history is what is this Eastern system? How is it going to interact with the, the Western system? What is the Western system going to do in response to the, uh, the overwhelming popularity of the Eastern system? among all the populations of the world. How is that going to happen? Well, I think the, the nexus between China, Pakistan, India, ISIS-K, uh, and, and the Taliban, all, all of them, that nexus is going to be uh, interesting to keep an eye on over the next decade or so, I think. Yeah, th I think that they, the U.S. may be in a position where they have to withdraw from some of these far-flung entanglements i think that the blowback it's interesting that they call their podcast blowback here as we wrap up i'll i'll close with some comment on the the title blowback because blowback was popularized by chalmers johnson uh in his book blowback and then he wrote two others after that the sorrows of empire and nemesis which are typically called the blowback trilogy he does not, they say that Johnson invented the term, but my understanding is the term actually came, I believe, from an after action report in Iran. I could, although I could be wrong about which operation it was, but it may have been after the 1953 coup 
and they said, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be some blowback after this one. And then, but it's, but it's a common intelligence term. It's just something that goes a consequence down the road that is negative for the, you know, the, the power that's been using covert operations abroad, right? That's what it means. And so a lot of these things come back and bite the U.S. in the ass. Now, on the surface, 9-11 seems like blowback because, oh, you did all these things in the 80s and then your networks turn against you. It's blowback. Well, maybe, maybe that or maybe it's not. Other people said it's more like blow forward because they wanted this. That's part also. But I, but I do believe that whatever they had in mind in Afghanistan, and I think that the, its location between Russia, China, and Iran in the minds of these nutcases, that was just too much. They were too aroused by the thought of owning that kind of strategically important territory, and they just couldn't let it go. So they kept on this idiotic occupation after for decades, you know, uh, trying to deal with this. And I think that the blowback may come from when the whole scope of this thing is more understood in the U.S. is, is it's continually uh, weakening position becomes even weaker. I think that the blowback is going to be like you have really damaged uh, American prestige in this area. And it's you've created more pressure for all of these countries to look for alternative ways to get out of it, to undermine and escape from U.S. domination. And that's where I think the blowback is, is being generated, that the more the U.S. has bungled so many of these things and the things it tried to do with its pipe dream of like a new American century and controlling the grand chessboard, they've it's all come to naught. I mean, they've left Afghanistan. It's it's like they went to a, a front closer to Europe in a sense. Like they there's a symmetry to them pulling out of Afghanistan and then putting all these resources into Ukraine. And now, but it's ended in such a sad and horrific and pathetic spectacle with this counteroffensive, which is really like the mosquitoes deciding that they're going to launch a counteroffensive against the bug zapper. It's the most, it's a sad, sad, tragic spectacle of these people just being slaughtered by basically impenetrable defenses. And God help them if they ever do advance to the more interior lines of defense, because then I think they're demises will be even more spectacular and bloody there won't even be anything left of them i mean it's like the russians just yeah are the russians have been working on this because they've been afraid of the u.s like so that's the blowback you do all of this, all of this aggression and you create the forces that are going to bring you down and i think that that's what this story is and when you understand what the u.s has done here and the misery of these people and how this country was on on one kind of trajectory in the early 70s and instead, they just went into the depths of hell on earth, and it's all because yeah. of the U. It's all because of the U.S. I, I, I would say I don't. I think the Russians were reactive, maybe unwise, but they weren't. They weren't looking to to make the lives of people in Afghanistan worse. They were just trying to, to stabilize the situation so it didn't get worse for them at home. And in that yeah, way, they didn't want cross border raids into their country. I mean, that's yeah. like a, the same thing that the Russians don't want today. Right, or the U.S. would not be pleased with any <laughs> any business like that. From no Mexico, one wants that, for example. So, this is where I think the blowback series. People should watch it. It is worth or listen to it. It's, it's worth listening to. They did a great job. And then listen to this and read Peter Dell Scott, uh, and so you can get even more of the picture, uh, and you'll be more armed with information to at least understand this empire, and maybe at certain points give it a little nudge toward the the exit stage because this is what we've we've got to we've got to deal with going forward we yeah gotta, there needs to be less blowback because we need to stop doing all the criminal things that are blowing back on us
Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, like, this is the sort of thing that we need to educate ourselves about so that, you know, we're not fumbling for answers when, if and when shit hits the fan. I mean, we need to we need to figure out what our country is so we can adequately fight against it. Uh, I mean, that's the that's the motto. That's the motto. Yep. And they're they're generating more enemies all the time, so we are not alone. And I think that they will go down. So we have that solace. The 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 imperial system. I don't mean the nation state. I think the nation state should be uh, saved as best it can for the time being until we get some sort of utopian thing centuries from now. But that's not coming anytime soon. So for now. I don't even think I'm like anti-American in the real sense. Like I would th want America to be good and prosperous and happy, but I'm against this murderous imperial uh, mafia system that we have. It sucks. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I, and I think probably my subscribers agree, or they would be subscribing to Pod Save America instead. So <laughs> I hope that you all enjoyed this. And Bryce, thank you so much for showing up today and talking about this. Yeah, story. happy to do it. To blowback. Oh yeah, you've been listening to Pod Save the World. <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, alright thank you very much Bryce alright no problem I want to thank Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music check the show notes to find links to Blowback Season 4 and thank you all so much for supporting American Exception it's because of you that we're able to keep chasing the light.